Think of someone who was completely detrained and they're coming to work with you, right? Day one, would you put them through four or five days a week of HIIT training? Well, we got to look at it much in the same way. You don't just dive into the deep end. You've got to kind of wade through the shallow end and start swimming and eventually get to the deep end. So you've hit it right in the head. If they come back and I get it, we're going to be, you know, we're getting this cabin fever. You know, we want to get out there. The gym is going to open. We're going to get the green light and we're going to, you know, there's going to be a number of people that are going to dive head first into this, right? There'll be a lot of people that will stay awake for health concerns, but those people that are diving in, you make the best point. They should not go right back into it because, you know, if they can honestly look themselves in the mirror and say, listen, my training intensity, my training volume didn't change during the social distancing period with where gyms are locked down, then they probably haven't lost anything. But I would say that's the minority of people. The majority of people, I'm going to use myself included, I have not, well, I've got shoulder surgery now, but during the first 10 weeks, I wasn't training. I was training frequently. If you looked at how many times I was going to my garage to work out, I probably increased my training frequency, but I wasn't working out as long because I was doing short little abridged workouts, but I wasn't working out as hard because let's be honest, I didn't have the same equipment. I'm limited with the equipment I have. So yeah, have I detrained? Yes, I have detrained. Um, I've got myself to what I'm calling a maintenance fitness, right? But I would be a fool if you were, if I was to come to you and say, hey, Pete, I want to go hard. You'd, you know, I would have to listen to your advice and say, no, 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 no. Don't go hard because if you go hard, you're going to be not allowing yourself enough recovery and you could make yourself more susceptible to be testing positive for COVID. But more importantly, you're going to compromise your immune system. It's got to be a gradual process. Hi, I'm Pete McCall, and welcome to this episode of the All About Fitness Podcast. That voice you just heard is my old friend, Mr. Fabio Camana. Fabio and I have known each other for a number of years. He really is one of the smartest people I know in fitness, and I mean that. We worked closely together at the American Council on Exercise. We've worked on a number of projects, a number of different things over the past years, and I travel with him frequently to speak at various conferences and various events. And as you hear today, there really is, I mean, there are very few people as smart as he is, as sharp as he is in the fitness industry. Now that said, before I get into the formal interview, I know we've been sitting at home. You know, if you're listening to this in the future, I'm recording this in early June in 2020. We've been sitting at home for a number of weeks. A number of people around the country have been quarantining, sheltering in place as a result of COVID-19. And we are just now being released to go back to the fitness center. At the end of this week when I'm recording this is when fitness centers open up here in San Diego County. And I know people are looking forward to that. And you maybe have been exercising at home. You maybe have been going for walks around the neighborhood. I, I don't know about you, but I certainly know all the different ways I can walk around my neighborhood. I know the short routes, I know the long routes, but I think that's great. You know, we were out there walking. I know, I don't know about you, but we've been doing working out from home. We've been doing bodyweight exercises, maybe the couple dumbbells. So when we're ready to get back to the gym, we want to get back to the gym. We want to hit our workouts. We want to get back to sweating. We want to get back to lifting heavy stuff. But that's exactly why I want to talk to Fabio Kamana. That's you know what Fabio and I talk about today are we talk about what you should be careful of when you start going back to the gym. Because remember, even if you have been exercising the last number of weeks, even if you have been active, you maybe haven't been going at the same intensity that you do when you're under the bar in, in a fitness center. Maybe you're, it's not the same intensity as when you're in an indoor cycling class. And we know that, that classes and everything are going to look different. I, I talked about that in a previous quick fit tip. 
But Fabio is one of the smartest guys. He's a professor of exercise science at San Diego State University. He's a consultant to companies like Orange Theory. He's their science advisor for Orange Theory Fitness. Fabio works with him on a number of number of different projects, number of different programs. And what I specifically want to talk with Fabio about today is what you should be careful of when you start getting back to your regular workouts. Another thing that we talk about is intermittent fasting. I use intermittent fasting. I do it regularly. In talking to Fabio in this conversation, I found out I'm doing some things right, a couple things I maybe need to adjust. But we talk about the benefits of intermittent fasting because it's gone from being a trend. And there's certainly a lot of evidence to suggest that intermittent fasting could be a healthy approach in terms of nutritional strategy. I started doing it on the advice of my primary care physician. So it wasn't just because I read about it in some blog somewhere and I did some research on it. So what we talk about today is we talk about things you need to be careful of when you get back to the gym. We talk about the benefits of intermittent fasting and we talk about what you can do to be smart as you return to the fitness center. Now, on that note, as you go back to the gym, if you need a few ideas about workouts, if you're saying, okay, I know I know, I need to start working out again, or I know I've, I feel great what I've been doing at home, maybe I've been doing some classes online. If you need to get a few ideas for workouts, I have workout programs available. These eight-week programs are progressively challenging. They get harder as you go. There are components in there for high-intensity interval training. Follow that smartly, just like Fabio and I talk about. There are programs in there to become progressively harder so you get stronger, you get fitter. I have a dumbbell workout program, I have a kettlebell conditioning program, and I have a functional core training program that really teaches you how to use all the core muscles in your body, all of them. You can find that below in the show notes. I also have a great piece of information. It's called Dynamic Anatomy, how your muscles work when you exercise. It tells you everything you need to know about how your muscles function when your body is moving. So check below in the show notes. That's how you can support the podcast. If you don't want to buy a piece of content, you can go to my website. My blog has a lot of information there. If you sign up, you go to my website and you sign up for my mailing list. And my website is PeteMcCallFitness.com. If you go to PeteMcCallFitness.com and sign up for the mailing list, I will send you a free chapter in workout from my book, Smarter Workouts, The Science of Exercise Made Simple. Finally, go to my YouTube channel, All About Fitness Podcast on YouTube. I got lectures up there. I got slides. I got workouts. I got all the information you need. All I'm trying to do with the podcast and with the content I put out there is to teach you how to use exercise to enhance your quality of life. That's exactly what I talk about with today with Fabio Kamana, a professor of exercise science at San Diego State University. We're going to talk about the benefits of high-intensity interval training. We're going to talk about what you be careful of when you go back to the gym after the shelter at place. And we're going to talk about the benefits of intermittent fasting and how you can start applying that to your life. So let's get started with Fabio Kamana from San Diego State. Today, I'm with an old friend who's a faculty lecturer at San Diego State University and a well-known fitness educator, Fabio Kamana. How are you doing today, Fabio? Doing well, Pete. Good to hear your voice. Good to see you and great to, well, honored to be back on your show. Thank you. No, well, thank you for taking the time to do this, man. I know you're busy and I know, uh, and then to see you kind of virtually. How is it? I know you, you, as a professor, you already did a lot of stuff online, but you're about halfway through the semester when all of a sudden everything had, had to shut down. What was that like to all of a sudden go from teaching, lecturing in class to having to make that adjustment to doing everything virtually? Well, there was an upside and a, bad, a downside because the upside for me was that I actually, given how I traveled to conferences to present, I already had a good amount of my educational content already in an online digital format. So 
for me to do the transition, um, unlike you know my peers in my department who had nothing online, it was basically rebuilding, you know, building from scratch. For me, it was a very smooth transition. So that was the upside for me that it was relatively smooth in that I didn't have to really do that much more work. It was just kind of filling in some gaps. But the downside was when this all happened, I was out of the country. And so as this was coming down, um, you know, it was basically, you know, we were getting messages on a daily basis from the president of the university telling us, okay, this is the plan. And then the plan was constantly fluid. It was changing. And I was trying to communicate with my class, you know, that what the next two weeks were going to look like, you know, because we were running right up against spring break too. So that became a disruptive part of my, you know, my trip that I was constantly having to check, you know, emails and communicate with, you know, 800 students. And I'm sure they were getting sick of the fact that every time I emailed them, the message was changing because it was changing to me too. But nonetheless, I didn't realize that you're out of the country. Were you down in Mexico or where were you? No, actually I was in the Bahamas taking a little vacation. (laughs) (laughs) So it it kind of disrupted my vacation a little bit, but you know, Hey, I'm not going to complain. I'd happily work from the Bahamas. Well, if you got stuck, imagine that though. Imagine you got stuck there, and you, and you know what? Ten weeks later, you couldn't get on a flight back to the states. I, I mean, I'm sure that happened with some people. Oh yeah, there was people that were stuck there. Yeah, now we were lucky that it was just happening. Like it was just the last two days, so I was able to. I mean, we were ready to jump on a plane at a moment's notice, but they were giving, letting us know that we were still okay. So we got to enjoy the last few days of it. No, that, that's good. I mean, I wouldn't want your uh, your vacation ruined on that. Yeah. Now, for listeners, Fabio, you are a you're an expert in exercise. And, and we're going to talk a little bit about that as we go forward. But you wrote a great post the other day on your Facebook page, kind of explaining what COVID-19 is and what it, how a virus functions. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I thought you did a great job of kind of breaking it down, what a virus is, how it lives, or how, you know, kind of some of the things to understand about it. Because I know there's been a lot of stuff out there already, but you broke it down in a way that I think is relatively easy to understand. And then you kind of talked about it in the application to the fitness environment. Yeah. So first thing to understand, we call it a virus. And so the question is, what is a virus? Is it a living entity, you know, like a like bacteria, like a human? It's not. It's really a, just a protein structure. And it's, I like to call it an opportunist in that its only means of survival is to find a viable host. And so if we look at the corona, the reason it's called corona, it's a family of these viruses, right? It's It's got these little You've seen the pictures of it. It's got these little crown-like structures. Those are protein spikes that allows it to kind of bind and penetrate into a cell. And then it literally takes over the cell. It uses, it takes its own DNA, RNA, it's, which is kind of a carbon copy of its genetic makeup. And it gets really, it hijacks the cells, um, you know, genetic replication factor, I'm going to call it. I'm trying to use lay terms here. And what it does, it actually just starts to actually replicate the necessary pieces that this protein entity needs. And so it replicates itself. It's like making more soldiers. And then those individual soldiers can leave and they get put into the back into circulation and they can end up taking over many and many more organs within the body. And of course, the one that we're vulnerable to with this Corona family, if you think of MERS and SARS and everything, they really have a target on the respiratory system. And so that's generally where most people suffer is from some sort of respiratory, some sort of acute respiratory or chronic respiratory condition. And so with that, I mean, the one thing that I think we've seen are the people that already had comorbidities, people who maybe were older, maybe unhealthy, maybe deconditioned. What, what is the benefit? If somebody who exercises regularly, how does that benefit the immune system? I mean, I know that's not necessarily your, your specialty, but I know you have a pretty good base of knowledge about that. Well, you know, we all know, we've heard this before. We've heard that, you know, exercise will boost your immune function. But we've also heard that 
overtraining can make you more susceptible to injury and illness. So there's kind of a fine line where, you know, anytime you put yourself into a fight or flight scenario. So let's, let's just define exercise as a fight or flight scenario. It's a healthy fight or flight scenario, but it is a fight or flight scenario. Now, this, the body's natural ability to handle a stress has actually allowed us as a species to survive. We have survived because of the stresses that we're exposed to. You know, Darwin said it best, you either perish or you adapt, right? And so what's happened is every time we exercise, it kind of compromises our immune system because the body just sees this as a physiological stressor. So anytime the body is physiologically under stress, we, in the acute phase, ramp up our immune responses. The problem with the immune system is that it's a very effective system, and we have two types of systems. We have our innate immune system, and then we have our adaptive. That's where a vaccine comes in. So we're just going to focus on the innate one because that's the one you're born with and you live with every day. The adaptive one is like a vaccine. It's seasonal, right? But it demands a lot from the human body. I mean, it's very taxing on the human body because it's got many moving parts. Well, I always say what goes up must come down, right? So if it's demanding more resources from you, at some point, your body can't sustain it. So what we have to do is to shut down that immune response. That means the body has to return back to its resting pre-stress level. We call that homeostasis. And that's what happens. So when exercise, when we're exposed to a stressor, the body naturally does what? It learns to adapt to overcoming that stressor. So it kind of goes through, some people call it stress inoculation, where we become kind of adapted to that stress, which means we can handle more of it the next time out. That's our immune system getting stronger. So if we apply the appropriate amount of stress to the system, but more importantly, we allow the recovery. And I know you're a big proponent of recovery. And this is one of the areas of recovery is that exercise is actually catabolic in nature and it stresses your immune system. But if you allow the appropriate modalities and the amount of time and the, the, you know, the tools and whatever you're doing in recovery, then your body actually gets a chance to restore itself back to homeostasis, allow itself for some adaptation. And then over time, that repetitive practice becomes where we become stronger. So that's, we call it progression in an exercise program. But if you don't allow yourself enough time to get that appropriate recovery, you start becoming a little bit of a downward spiral. So I'm going to just use my fingers. Imagine we started here and the first workout created this much of a breakdown to our system. And then we only allow a partial recovery. Then we go into the next workout and we have a partial recovery in the next workout. We're kind of on a bit of a downward trajectory. And that's where we get into what we call overtraining syndrome. All right. So dysfunctional overreaching going into overtraining. And that can be typically characterized physiologically by certain symptoms, much like you're getting sick, and ultimately leads to a breakdown, which could be you're more prone to immune, uh, to injury, or you're more prone to illness. And that's what we've seen with COVID. People that are coming in with more of these COVID risk factors, uh, these comorbid risk factors, like you mentioned, don't have that strong immune system. So they're already coming in compromised, and all of a sudden we're adding a stressor, the coronavirus, and it's just basically taking them down that same pathway. I mean, it's not the same outcome, but the process is much like someone who's overtraining. It's a gradual, you're gradually losing the ability of your immune system to, to defend you. Well, let me ask you a question this way. So I think, again, you try to help listeners understand a little bit. So say I'm training for a marathon. Sure. Ultimately, my goal is I have to be able to run 26 miles. Yes. So what do I do? Every week I run one or two more miles and that makes me fitter. My body adapts, so it makes me fitter. Yes. And the reason why I want to say this and go through this with people is because my fear is, Fabio, is that, well, one of the things first, being sheltered in place, I think this has been a period of eight to 12 weeks of kind of like forced recovery, where people are still active, 
but they're not doing the same high intensity exercises they're doing four or five days a week in the gym. Maybe they've been doing body weight exercises, maybe doing doing other stuff, but they haven't been slamming their bodies the same way they normally do in the gym. So I think we're all, everybody who's fit and exercise on a regular basis, I think we're kind of all at a higher state of recovery right now because we've been a little bit more well rested. That's just, that's a general hypothesis. There's no way to test that. And I think but, you're right. Um, if I, I just want to add one thing, because I think you're on the yeah. right thing. I think we've we've passed through this act, this forced recovery, where now we've gone into forced detraining, oh, yeah. because we don't yeah. need eight to twelve weeks. We could we could generally, as most people just take a week or two off, an offload or a deload, they come back strong. I think we've gone past that now. Given that we're now in our twelfth week, I think it's now going into active detraining, because most people, there's always exceptions to the rule, are not training with the same vigor that they were training when we were during normal times. Yeah, no, I, and that's because you can get, I mean, I think people have been doing their workouts at home and I don't know about you, but where I live in Carlsbad, man, it's almost like rush hour out on the sidewalks. A lot of people have been walking through the neighborhood and doing a lot yeah. of neighborhood walks. But the reason why I say that is if we, if we train regularly, like we're training for a marathon, we're strengthening our immune system. So when we get sick, normally, if we catch a cold or a flu, we don't exercise for a few days because we need to give our immune system the energy to fight that cold flu, whatever that is, that virus, that fog, you know, and that's where, and the reason why I want to say this is as we get going back to the gyms, I really want people to pay attention to it and not try to jump in right where you left off in mid-March because number one, you're not going to be a hundred percent fit. Number two, the virus is still active. And if they start exercising at a really high level of intensity, then, and they jump right back in the HIIT training, for example, three, four times a week, that in the short term, could not, could that not compromise their immune system? If Absolutely. all of a sudden they go right back to hit training and now we start this COVID out there, we might be relatively fit with our immune system, but now we reintroduce hit training in a studio format a few times a week. Now we're, we're actually going to be compromising our immune system at a time when we don't want to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you make you hit the nail right on the head. I mean, think of this. Think of someone who was completely detrained and they're coming to work with you, right? Day one, would you put them through four or five days a week of HIIT training for a absolutely. deconditioned yeah, person? No. Well, we've got to look at it much in the same way. You don't just dive into the deep end. You've got to kind of wade through the shallow end and start swimming and eventually get to the deep end. So you've hit it right in the head. If they come back, and I get it, we're going to be, you know, we're getting this cabin fever. You know, we want to get out there. The gym is going to open. We're going to get the green light. And we're going to, you know, there's going to be a number of people that are going to dive head first into this, right? There will be a lot of people that will stay awake for health concerns, but those people that are diving in, you make the best point. They should not go right back into it because, you know, if they can honestly look themselves in the mirror and say, listen, my training intensity, my training volume didn't change during this COVID, you know, um, you know, sort of social distancing period with where gyms are locked down, then they probably haven't lost anything. But I would say that's the minority of people. The majority of people, I'm going to use myself included, I have not, well, I've got shoulder surgery now, but during the first 10 weeks, I wasn't training. I was training frequently. If you looked at how many times I was going to my garage to work out, I probably increased my training frequency, but I wasn't working out as long because I was doing short little abridged workouts, but I wasn't working out as hard because let's be honest, I didn't have the same equipment. I'm limited with the equipment I have. So yeah, have I detrained? Yes, I have detrained. Um, I've got myself to what I'm calling a maintenance fitness, right? But I would be a fool if you were, if I was to come to you say, hey, Pete, I want to go hard. You'd, you know, I would have to listen to your advice and say, no, 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 no. Don't go hard because if you go hard, you're going to be not allowing yourself enough recovery and you could make yourself more susceptible to be testing positive for COVID. But more importantly, you're going to compromise your immune system. It's got to be a gradual process. Yeah, thanks. And I, you know, that was one of the things I wanted to have you kind of talk about. Yeah, no, that's... Because that is 
great observation. That, like everywhere you get the green lights and people are, are going to be itching. Yeah. They've been doing workouts at home. Yeah. They may, they may even been doing Peloton or, or some great online programming, but it's not the same as when you're in a studio, with 10, 15, 20 people and you feel that energy. And I want people just to be really mindful that to give yourself two, six, eight weeks of building, just like you wouldn't try to run a marathon without, you I mean, you could be doing a couple minutes of working out at home, but doesn't mean you're ready to do a marathon. Absolutely. And so when you get back to the gym, I think it's really important for people to understand they want to take anywhere from two to eight weeks before they start getting back up to their normal intensity. Would you, I mean, what would your guideline be? I, that's, I think, I think you hit it right on the head. I, I'd, I'd say, you know, I, I like your range because I think you're accommodating a lot of people because there are going to be people that maybe just need a few weeks because they haven't detrained as much. If I use myself as an example, if I wanted to get back to what I was doing, you know, kind of a, a, a comparable measure of work, call it objectively measured. In other words, what sets and reps and loads were I doing? What's my tempos that I were maintaining on my runs? It's probably going to take me four to six weeks to do it right. Now, I could try and rush it. I'd probably end up getting there, but it's going to come at a cost, like you mentioned. So I would say for me, four to six weeks would be advice. I like your guideline of two to eight weeks because I think and that covers, that'll cover a lot of people. And just personally, I've been, once they open the trails back up, I've been on my mountain bike a lot more. I'm doing, yeah. I, have a, I have a, you know, you had your shoulder done. I have a pretty gnarly subluxation in L5 and my dad having seen a Cairo for. So I really haven't been doing much weight training. I've been doing body weight training, but I've been on my mountain bike two, three times a week. So my VO2 is awesome. But I know when I get back to the gym, I'm at, it's going to take me about six weeks, probably about two months to get back where I was strength-wise. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I know enough not to push it because, you know, especially being over 40, the last thing I want to do is get a stupid muscle, you know, is to, you know, injure it. You know, and that's, and that's the other thing for listeners is you might feel strong those first couple of workouts back. But that's because you're fully rested. Muscles are full of glycogen, ready to rock and roll. Do not <laughs> pick up where you left off. I mean, yes. you, know, you have... You know, not, not, not to, you know, to, no, I don't mean to be talking, you know, I don't, I don't like to try to inflate, but you have two of the smarter people that in the fitness business, in the education side that know what we're talking about, kind of telling you to take it easy. I, I think people ought to take it easy, right? Yes, I agree. Just gradually get back into it. Now, on that note, though, one of the things I've been joking about in, in, in COVID-19, Fabio, is that 19 stands for the weight gain that people maybe, you know, they've been sheltering a place. You know, maybe they've been baking, maybe they've been stress eating. And even if they have been working out, you know, I know I've probably gained a pound or two. But, you know, what would be a good if we know people don't we don't want people to jump right back into high intensity training? What would be a good way? What's a good uh, approach to start? You know, I know I gained a couple of pounds. I want to burn this off. What would be a smart approach to take if I want to? You know, number one, how long should we say I gain? Say I gained five pounds. I want to lose five pounds when I get back to the gym. I think that sure. could be an average weight. How long, what should I look at and how long should I plan to, to lose that? Well, I, it's hard to put a time on it because, I mean, if you think of it, we've always been talking about how prudent weight loss is one to two pounds a week, right? So, I mean, you could mathematically figure that out. If I want to lose 10 pounds, hey, give me five to 10 weeks. But I don't think it should be looked at that way because we're all individuals that have such unique metabolic influences, right? I think the way to look at it is kind of looking at, you know, where you are. And I would say, you know, preparing yourself. And I think, you know, we've all allowed, you know, ourselves to kind of let down our guard. You know, we think about it, caloric balance at the, in its most simplistic form is really this differential between caloric intake and caloric expenditure, right? Now, what happened in March is we went into a very disruptive phase of our life where we dramatically changed that equation. What we took out of the equation was caloric expenditure. Call it your 
trips to the gym and all those things you were doing outdoors where we had to kind of, you know, self-quarantine, right? On the flip side, what we didn't really do a good job of controlling, and, I, you know, a lot of people might attest to this, is we had, a you know, the perfect storm for overeating. I mean, think about this. You know, we talk about temptation and willpower, and it wanes through the day. But during the day, a lot of times you're distracted. You get out of the house. You get to the work environment. You don't have access to food. You're able to, you know, to stay focused on the chores. Now, all of a sudden, I say, no, Pete, you're going to be at your desk for 12 hours. Well, the refrigerator is just 20 steps away. You know you can take these little periodic breaks. So you have access to food. You've got less barriers. There's an e- so, many, so many more ways to give in to temptation and to, and to wane with your willpower. And the reality is most people have probably eaten more, have started to eat more, at least initially, maybe when we first started, until <coughs> they reached a point where they said, enough is enough. It's kind of what happened to me. I mean, I will be honest, the first few weeks, I was just trying to get through everything I needed to do, trying to get my classes, make sure I was flowing everything. And I wasn't really paying attention to what I was eating. And I realized I put on more, a few pounds. I was part of that. That I wasn't quite 19, but I was COVID, <laughs> yeah, no, no. COVID a handful, right? And then I realized, all right, I've got to realize that in the interim, this is my caloric expenditure opportunities. And in, for an uncertain amount of time, it's not going to change. So what I had to do is play on the other side of the equation. So I looked for two options. Number one, I said, what is my, I did what's called a metabolic profile. And I didn't create this. This was created 10 years ago by a researcher called Hamilton, but I've modified it. And I said, I'm just going to, what does my typical day look like? So I looked at my typical day. And what I did with that is I said, how much of this time am I spending sitting? It was just an assessment of my new life, so to speak. And I realized I'm doing a hell of a lot more sitting now than I ever was before. Because when I used to go to campus, I would walk, I'd stand up in my classes. I was teaching sitting at my desk, Right. And I wasn't getting the gym trips. I wasn't walking around campus. I was going from my bedroom to the kitchen to the office. So I realized that, you know, and we've talked about this idea of NEAT, and I know all your listeners are familiar with NEAT. I realized I needed to increase my NEAT calories. So what I ended up starting doing is I started trying to teach, doing kind of a sit-to-stand. And between my classes, I was going out for like a 15-minute walk around my neighborhood. I started, I wasn't looking for more time necessarily. I was just trying to change the way I was doing the things I was doing, my new schedule, so to speak. But I was also trying to squeeze in little things here, like every little bit counts. Hey, can you go do a 10-minute walk? Can you do five? I was just walking up and down my neighborhood street, you know, just to get out and be active. To me, it was a nice break from my office environment, but it was also a way to get more calories. Then I started looking at my diet, and I did a little bit of intermittent fasting. I started to do a little bit of modification on certain days, but I also did a little change in my macronutrient distribution that I went slightly to a higher protein, lower carb. Because like you mentioned it earlier in this podcast, my glycogen tanks don't need to be full right now because the reality is I'm not doing much or anything that demands a full tank of glycogen. So I switched a little bit more to a protein you know, and healthier fat so that I'd get more satiety and I would be able to restrict the number of calories. So I was able to just subtly, just small changes is reduce my caloric intake and at the same time, increase my caloric expenditure. And I think as we're going back, as people are starting to realize that we're moving through these phases and reverting back to a normal lifestyle, a strategy like that in preparation would probably be a good start. And then going out, just realize we didn't put these pounds on in two to four weeks. You know, we're 12 weeks into this. I think that's what you addre- you mentioned. So I'd say be kind to yourself and be realistic. That 
we all don't like that, especially we're going into summertime. No one wants to have those unsightly pounds, but it's not going to happen overnight unless you're doing something really drastic. And we all know, you and I both know this drastic is going to backfire. So I would say try some proactive measures in anticipation of your return, but then also think about, you know, being kind to yourself and being realistic and looking for those opportunities to say, what can I do differently now? If my life is going to change, how can I be more active? And maybe I've got myself to a nice caloric intake, then I can just find ways to expend, increase the expenditure. And I think that's, I mean, it's a smart approach to it, right? I mean, and I like the energy because is it really that simple, like calories in versus calories out? Because no. I really think, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we're not even like, I don't know about, about you, but I'm going through, I'm, I'm buying maybe one tank of gas a month instead of maybe doing a tank of gas a week. So I'm not, I'm definitely not out and about as much anymore. I, you, know, you mentioned something there and I want to ask you, this is another thing I want to talk to you a little bit about. And that's intermittent fasting. I've yeah. been playing around with intermittent fasting the last little bit. And it was, it was actually on advice of my primary care physician. And as I read about it, Fabio, at first, when I first heard about it a few years ago, I thought it was a little bit hokey. Like, okay, here's another trendy thing. But the more and more data they get on it, there seems to be a lot of evidence there that suggests that it's maybe, um, I wouldn't say it's the only way to do it, but that it's not an unhealthy way to look at, at controlling nutritional intake. Yes, I would say I would. I, I agree with you. If I was to say, well, let me backtrack. If someone was to ask me, "What is your position on intermittent fasting?" and you, I wanted to give it a score, I wouldn't. I'm not 100% in love with it because the reality reality is intermittent fasting. It's not really a focus on what you're eating, but more on when you eat. And unfortunately, in that label of when you eat, there are some great practices that I really like, that I believe have more research around them. But there's also some anecdotal practices, and a lot of them are manifested out of the fitness industry, out of the physique world, that I think have more anecdotal evidence that I think are actually counterproductive. And I can share some of those counterproductive things with you, right? Um, so, but I, I'm, I am overall, I'm in favor of it. I think this is a great alternative to dieting if you choose the appropriate intermittent fasting regimen, because the biggest challenge we have with dieting is that it's too restrictive and we see high rates of attrition. Let's call it after the first month. Whereas with intermittent fasting, especially if you do something that's more moderate, right? This can be sustainable indefinitely, which means you'll get to the same outcome. It may just take you a little longer, but it's going to be a more sustainable way of doing it. And that's what I love about it. And what I've been doing, and I'll be sitting here because we've talked about this a little bit before. And again, it's like talking to my doctor, kind of what I've been doing. And for listeners, this is no way the right way. It's just kind of like how it fitted into my lifestyle. But I generally tend to eat between, I, I try to work out and then I have my first meal after I work out. And so I'll try to eat some, I'll try to eat two meals, maybe three meals between like three in the afternoon and eight thirty, nine o'clock in the evening and not full meals, but you know, just there might be like two meals and a snack in there in that like six hour period. And then I'll go, you know, six in anywhere from 12 to 18 hours trying to go in a row without eating. And some days I go longer, some days I go shorter. I don't follow any strict schedule. So you're doing what's called time restricted feeding. Right. And that's one option. And so the 16-8 is a very popular one. So let's talk a little bit about them because I think it's important that your listeners get more of an understanding of, you know, the different modalities. And let me, you know, and I'll talk about the pros and cons, right? So let's think of the history of it. I mean, religious fasting periods, think Ramadan, right? And so we see, you know, we've had this, you know, 12-hour window, 14-hour window where people were fasting and, you know, pretty extreme fasting. 
right? We've even seen for medical reasons, there's been medical re uh, research limited on humans, but mostly on rodents, where they've done what they call prolonged fasting. They might go one to two days without food, right? And we've seen some results there, but usually those are very extreme. Typically, what we see is what we call alternate day fasting, right? So alternate day fasting is where I'll eat normally on May on a Monday, but then I fast completely on a Tuesday. That's become one. And then there's what they call the modified fasting regimens, which is what I like. Um, think of Mosley's 5-2, right? So where you, and it's kind of what you mentioned you're doing. You're not fasting all day long. You are restricting your calories, but you are taking incremental feedings through the day, right? To some degree, that's what you're doing. So you're kind of doing a hybrid between what I call modified fasting regimens and time-restricted feeding. Right, time restricted feeding is where you eat for a certain in, a portion of the day, and then you fast for you know like the sixteen eight. So someone might eat between twelve and eight p.m., and then they fast from eight p.m. all the way through back to twelve p.m. So the claims, you're absolutely right. You said the research is changing quite dramatically, right? And we've seen. Remember, keep in mind, most of this research was primarily. Uh, completed on rodents, but we are seeing a lot more human studies now, and they're making a lot of claims, right? Um, insulin sensitivity, disease, um, controlling appetite, improved cognitive function, or even seeing performance claims, right? Improved strength. I mean, a lot of these claims are being validated, right? So there's definitely some truth to it. Now, when it comes to weight loss, when you compare some of the key fasting studies against traditional dieting, so let's call it daily caloric restriction, over a period of time, they're really not going to make much of a difference. But it is a more sustainable way of eating. And to your point, it could be a healthier way of eating because you're not putting that much restriction on people. Because remember, when people lose the ability to choose, which is what a diet does, right? Generally, they become very stressed, right? That right, that right to choose, that autonomy to choose is a fundamental right that we all strive to, you know, to preserve. And so it triggers psychological reactance, which is this rebellious attitude, and that can heighten stress levels and anxiety. And we all know there's a downside of this self-imposed emotional and cognitive stress. So some of these fasting protocols, because they are, they're not as restrictive, they're only asking you to be restrictive maybe on a certain part of the day or certain days of the week rather than on a continual basis they seem to have better outcomes. But here's some of the things I want to caution you on. So, and I'm going to bring it up to you because you said I work out and then I eat, all right, which is that kind of fasted cardio mentality that's been very popular. And so let's address that one first. Why do people do fasted cardio? What would be the number one reason they're told? Why is this beneficial? Well, hey, you're going to burn more fat. And is there truth to that? Absolute truth to that because let's say, Pete, you, ate, you eat dinner tonight, and you eat some carbs tonight, and so postprandial after you eat, you've got some of your muscle glycogen and your liver glycogen being filled up. Now, overnight, your muscle glycogen tank is not going to be tapped because you cannot release glucose from muscle cells. Its fate is either you store me until you use me. The liver, by comparison, is the unique organ that constantly is releasing glucose into circulation. But that liver tank is relatively small. You know, we talk about 50 grams of glycogen per kilogram of, of liver tissue. So that puts the average person, a petite woman, 75 grams, a, a male your size, maybe 100 to 125 grams. Well, that can deplete within 12 hours. Just without exercising, just, you know, function, 
physiological function because your bloodstream is the source of delivery of glucose and the liver maintains blood sugar. So when we wake up in the morning, your liver tank is getting near empty. And just like you would do if you're driving around town and you're out of gas, you would take your foot off the pedal to conserve gas. Your body thinks, how do I conserve my, my liver glycogen tank? Well, I got an idea. Let's shift to burning more fats, spike cortisol. And that's why we see that fasted cardio mentality. So they're not lying about that, but they're not giving you the whole truth because cortisol doesn't just do one thing. One of the things I'm concerned about, people talk about, well, the cortisol also attacks your muscle protein. It's going to be minimal. But one thing I am concerned about is cortisol also impedes the ability of the brain to release thyroid stimulating hormone. And when you're waking up in the morning, you think your circadian rhythms, your metabolism is starting to rev itself up. And if you suppress this hormone TSH by even 20%, think of having a 20% reduction on your resting metabolic rate for the first few hours of your day. You've just lost the ability to burn 60, 70, 80 more calories in that window before you eat. But if you say, yeah, but I'm burning more fat calories, but the, the shift in fat calories is so small that you're probably talking about a shift in a fasted state of maybe 50 to 60 calories, big deal, 3,500 calories is a pound, which means you'd have to work out for two months just to get that pound of fat. So I'm not a big fan of that exercise before you eat. I'm sensitive to the fact that some people don't like to put food in their stomach before they eat because they feel like it fills them, but you don't have to have a big meal. I just need just like a tank of gas. I don't need to fill up your tank. I just need a little bit of gas to turn your gas light off. So a little bit of protein, a little bit of carbs, something that could even be under 120 calories would be adequate to get you out of that overnight fasted state. That's why they call it breakfast for a reason, right? But that's not what, I'm, what I want to really focus on. That was just a little sidebar, but here's the things. They've done some studies and they were actually looking at this hormone ghrelin. I don't know if you know, ghrelin is the hormone that stimulates your appetite. And they looked at people that were eating in the morning part of the day. So we can still do early morning. You can still do a time-restricted feeding like you're doing, but the difference is those people that are eating in the morning, say seven o'clock versus the people that are waiting till 12 o'clock. And when they were looking at ghrelin levels, they were finding that later on in the day, ghrelin levels were much higher in the people that were fasting in the morning versus people that were eating in the morning, which means they're more likely to do what? Snack and binge at the end of the day. So that's one downside. It's going to make temptation that much harder. We also know that your insulin, your, more, your insulin sensitivity levels are higher in the morning than they are during the latter part of the day. So if you eat a, a certain amount of carbohydrates in the morning, you're going to have less of an insulin response than you would if you had that same amount of carbohydrates later in the day. And what do we know about insulin? Well, the elevation of insulin suppresses your body's ability to burn fats. It suppresses hormone-sensitive lipase. So that's another concern that if you are skipping, right, and eating later in the day, you're going to need more insulin to take care of that amount of carbohydrates that you ate, which means you are going to, first of all, you're not doing a great job on controlling your insulin, circulating insulin levels, but you're also going to be slightly impairing some muscle protein synthesis rates. Uh, sorry, I mean uh, fat metabolism. And then I, I jumped the gun. The last thing I want to share with you is muscle protein synthesis. So if you look at... Um, uh, uh, Brad Schoenfeld and, Alan, and uh, Aragon, Alan Aragon, they did a nice comprehensive review of literature and they talked about what's the takeaway on when we should be feeding. And we find that we undulate through the day on protein synthesis. So we go through undulations of muscle protein synthesis, generally follows after we eat, we get elevated insulin and amino acids, and then we go into muscle protein degradation. And our day fluctuates like that. But what, what the research consensus shows is that we should be feeding protein every four, about four times a day, so every three to four hours.
So if you're going for a long period of time without eating, you are forcing your body into more muscle protein degradation, right? And that's also not a good thing, right? We also know that your, 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 uh, your gastric emptying rates are better earlier parts of the day than they are later in the day. We know that your, um, your microbes in your, in your ingestional tract are more active in the early part of the day than they are in the latter part of the day. So I don't have a problem with people doing a time-restricted feeding, but if you were, I would suggest eating between seven and three rather than between 12 and eight. Get your feeding or get at least some calories in the morning. And that's why I'm more of a fan on these programs that I mentioned, the modified fasting regimens where like Mosley's 5-2 is we are going to do some fasting days, but on those days, we drop your calories to about, he suggested 25% of your normal intake. And what we do is we break your calories out through the day. So that we don't just feed in it. We are just restricting overall calories because that'll bring your insulin levels down. But you feed every several few hours, a small little meal, high protein to make sure that you're not getting into too much protein catabolism, a little bit of healthy fats to maintain satiety, and you just eat periodically through the day, but you just take the total amount of calories down. That's the approach. So I'm, I'm, I'm more supportive of that. So Christine Varaday, her, every other day she recommends something similar. Mosley's 5-2 is kind of built on the same thing. Kate Harrison's, she created the 5-2 diet. Dr. Jason Fung with his obesity code, they're all talking about that same concept. All right, I talked for too long. I'm sorry. No, no, I'm just saying, I'm just, I'm just like, for listeners, I'm getting ready to step out the door and go jump in front of a bus because, <laughs> you know, you realize, well, you know, because one of the things I've liked, and this is where I went back and forth my primary care. One of the things I like about it, though, and what I found for me, what works with it, Fabio, is that I feel like I have more time throughout the day because I'm not worried about getting, you know, I don't need to go, like the days where I'm trying to fast for a period of time. I'm not worried about, okay, I got to go take a lunch. I got to go do this. I got to do that. Sure. And so that's what I like about it. Kind of having more time throughout the day. Sure. Absolutely. Very I, valid. I found personally that once I go about 10 or 12 hours, I can go another two or three hours that like, once you kind of get used to that and I'm not doing it for any, I mean, I'm not, I'm more doing it more for health reasons and I'm not sure. Cause I agree with you hundred percent. If I were trying to add muscle, if I were trying to get bulky or trying to get stronger, I wouldn't be restricting. I wouldn't be doing that because from what I've read, it's not a good idea. It doesn't support, you know, kind of the, the anabolism. It doesn't support muscle growth. Yes. You know, I'm just really trying to, I'm really trying to do it. Number one, you know, I, when we travel, you know how, when we travel, sometimes we're on our feet all day and we don't get a chance. So I try to at least have that ability to say, I don't need to take a lunch. I don't need to go here, yeah. especially when we're traveling around somewhere like Asia and the food quality is somewhat suspect at best, you know, yeah. you get used to that. But I just found I, I like the convenience of it. But I'll, I'll give it a look about shifting from eating more in the afternoon and the evening to eating earlier. Uh, you know. Yeah, and I will tell you, add one thing. I, you know, think about when most people are weighing with their t- resistance or their ability to avoid temptation is in the latter parts of the day, right? So if you're going to actually end your calories at, say, 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, it will make the evening very challenging for you. So keep that yeah. in mind. So you have to create the appropriate distractions or activities right? Where you can, like you said, you could go a few more hours if you're gone. That becomes the hardest part of that modality. So the study that, that looked at compared that early morning fasting versus the later fasting, sorry, early morning feeding versus the later feeding, what they didn't consider is long-term, what would be the ability of people to resist temptation of snacking? Because we all know that most people snack at the latter part of the day. So that becomes the challenge with it. But, uh, you know, there is some research supporting that, you know, feeding 
earlier in the day does have some physiological benefits. But Pete, at the end of the day is this, what is fasting trying to do? It's taking those total amount of calories you're eating and number one, reducing them. And then at times creating these undulating periodizations of time between when you feed so that you can create more balance between your hormonal fluctuations and things of that nature. You can do that you know, by just reducing the amount of calories you're eating. That's why I said the 5-2 focuses on certain days of the week, just reducing the calories, not a complete fast, but just reducing the calories. I would say we're going to learn more about this. We, we're at the tip of the iceberg. I think, you know, if we, you and I would have this conversation next year, we might be having a completely different conversation because of the new research that's going to come out in terms of what's physiologically better, what's more sustainable, what's more metabolically viable, things of that nature. Well, I'm working on my, I don't, I don't know if I told you this, but I'm working on a second book now called Age, Ageless Intensity about how high intensity, actually, you know, that's been my, my you know, kind of my focus. Yes. But it's on how high intensity exercise kind of slows down the aging process as a fountain of youth. And the one thing that keeps popping up, Fabio, in, in the literature that I'm reading is that obviously exercise is one of the key things that slows down the aging process. But what's the other one? What's the other thing? What do you think is the other reduction, thing? Reduction in calories. Yeah, caloric restriction. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, why would caloric restriction, how would that influence the aging process? And uh, you would be, we probably don't have the amount of time. I know we're running up on, on your time here. No, no, it's fine. Like- it's fine. No, I'll give you a quick overview. Generally, you know, we all know that as Americans, we have an obesity issue. So Wait, when what? they say yeah. restriction of calories, let's use a better term, reduction of calories. So a restriction of calories can actually be very unhealthy because it can put you into malnutrition, Right. And can elevate stress levels. But the idea is to create, to gradually diminish the calories to a point where the, the, the nutrients you're providing your body is adequate to support the physiology your body needs. Most of us eat in surplus. And we all know that when we eat in surplus, it creates a whole domino effect of things. So from a hormonal standpoint, I just think, okay, so I've got excess carbs in my diet, right? What do we know excess carbs become? Well, they become fats, where are those fats stored? Well, if you're a male, depending on your stress levels, if you've got a lot of stress associated, you're going to see more visceral fat deposition. And we know visceral fat, which is around your organs, is more dangerous from a cardiovascular standpoint than more your subcutaneous fat, which is that unsightly aesthetic fat, because it can release inflammatory agents, right? So when you start to reduce your calories, all right, you start to even out hormonal levels in the body so you don't have these adverse fluctuations, extreme fluctuations. You start to minimize how much excess surplus you're having, all right? You actually put your cells into a little bit of a starvation state, which forces them, just like we say, how does HIIT training improve aerobic capacity? Because HIIT training is all anaerobic. Well, anytime a system is stressed, it's trying to find a way to alleviate that stress. So part of what we see when people do HIIT training or sprint work is we see an increase in mitochondrial density. And for a lot of people, that doesn't make sense. They're like, well, why do I need more mitochondria when I'm doing anaerobic work? It's because your body's trying to find a way to adapt to overcome that stressor. So when I put my body into a little bit of calorie reduction and I make the cells starve just a little bit, not too much, it's kind of that threshold, the cell becomes, adapts to becoming more efficient to how it operates and runs itself and the cell becomes more viable, can live longer. Yeah. And that's, and that's the other thing. It just, it, it fascinates me to pop up. And, and I was looking in a textbook that's maybe 10, 12 years old and it mentioned caloric restriction. And then as I go through the recent research literature, caloric restriction keeps popping up again yeah. and again, and again, with obviously exercise being the number one way to really slow yes. down the aging process. Yeah. Now, final thing to wrap up here, because this is one thing that I'm kind of like, 
I actually emailed our friend, uh, Dr. Kravitz about it, but reactive oxygen species, Fabio, what, one of the things that's a free radical that gets produced as a, as a, as a side product or as, as a product of aerobic metabolism, right? Theoretically. Yes. Theoretically. That, what, it's one, it's one Avenue, one Avenue. Yes. Okay. But then when we look at the, when we look at anaerobic metabolism, anaerobic metabolism doesn't have the same, it doesn't do the same, doesn't have the same production of reactive oxygen species, does it? Uh, theoretically, no, it shouldn't, because you're talking about, you're, you, you're less reliant on, remember, a, a ROS, which is what you're talking about, is just an unstable oxygen element, right? And if you are focused more on anaerobic work, really in the mechanisms involved, there's less presence of oxygen. So you wouldn't see as many of those potential unstable oxygen elements being formed, like you'd see with more aerobic activity, where that system or that mechanism is primarily de dependent upon the availability of oxygen. Well, because I'm starting to really pour through the data, and I just wrote an article for uh, our old uh, our old employer, American Council and Exercise, on the benefits of HIT training for the older adults. And part of it was, and it, I didn't write about this, but just kind of putting the pieces together, part of it was looking at it and going, okay, HIT, if I'm only going to do 8 to 12 minutes of HIT, and just so you know, I interviewed uh, Marty Gabala again about two months ago sure. to talk a little bit about the benefits of HIT, of, of the HIT for stay at home. But looking at 8 to 12 minutes of HIT, might that be, I mean, if we're looking at doing exercise, kind of slow down aging, might eight to 12 minutes of HIIT training, might that be a better option two or three times a week than going for an hour long run, just in terms of overall metabolic stress on the body, purely from that standpoint. And, and then again, I don't, I don't expect a definitive answer, but I'm kind of like, that's the question that's popping up in my mind sure. as I'm working on this stuff. Um, I'd say there's a great potential for it because, you know, the concern is too, is that as we age, we don't, our body is not as resilient to dealing with stress as when we're younger. You know, that's why we suffer muscle soreness longer. It takes us longer to warm up. You know, we, it takes us longer to recover from a hangover. You know, all those things, right? There's an endless list. We don't need to go into all the details. But yeah. Exactly. So I would say um, to your point, yes, as long as there is an appropriate amount, when I say amount, frequency of HIIT yeah. training, so two to three times a week as opposed to four to five times a week, because then the that aging body is not allowed the recovery, and that lack of recovery could be as detrimental to the body as, you know, someone who is, you know, like the comparison you're, you're saying between uh, HIIT training and, and a longer duration of HIIT training. I, I'm a big fan of interval type training. I've always been a big fan of interval type training. Why? Because I can get the results I'm looking for in a compressed period of time. And time is the most, one of my most precious commodities that I don't have enough of. So if you were to tell me, hey, Fab, you can get the same benefits. And we've seen it from Tabata's study in, in 1996 to what Marty Gabala has been doing and all these guys have been doing, they've been showing us, you can get comparable benefits in a fraction of the time. What am I giving back to you? You've just told me, Pete said, hey, you know what? We can get those same results that you would do for 45 minutes, three times a week. I can get it to you in 10 minutes, three times a week. You've just taken 135 minutes and made it 30 minutes. You just gave me 100 minutes back in my week that I can do something that I want to do. So I also like to look at it from beyond the physiological standpoint. Look at the psycho-emotional impact that you're having. I could spend that hour. You could spend it with your kids. All right? So I Not love- more, man. I'm, I'm done with homeschool, dude. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love sure. my kids, but I hate I, my students. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I get that. And I, and I don't have the kids, so I, I, don't, I can't empathize you, but I can I truly understand because I've heard the horror stories. <laughs> There's one person that said, you know, I was, trying to, I was trying to tutor my kid in math 
And when I started realizing there were letters now being put into math, I had to get a tutor. And the tutor comes twice a week, once a week for the kid and once a week for me. <laughs> I'm like, no, but Peter, I think your point is I, I, I'm a big fan of it. So I love the direction you're going. I really think that appropriate level of hit done it with appropriate volume, I think is a time-saving benefit that give you results in a compressed period of time. But more importantly, it gives you that time back, especially as we're aging. I mean, the years are not going by any slower, that you could take that savings of time and use it for something that you generally desire to do. Put more love into your life, put more enjoyment into your life, enjoy those positive experiences. So I think there's another added benefit that a lot of people don't think about because we are so driven to think of it just from a physiological standpoint. Think bigger. Think of it from a psycho-emotional standpoint, too. And just to wrap up with this, and for listeners, you know, when, when they closed all the mountain biking trails around here, I had just been getting on my bike two or three times a week and then couldn't ride it again for about four or five weeks. And I was doing that at home. I was doing maybe 15 to 20 minutes at a time. And I posted some of those videos now on my workout on my YouTube channel and stuff just to show what to do. And I have to say, Bob, doing like 15 minutes, 20 minutes of hit two or three times a week, and that includes warm-up. That's not the full no, 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 I get thing. that. Yeah, that I get that. Yeah, yeah. But doing it relatively short, two or three times a week, I got back on my mountain bike, man, and I felt, you know, oh, I yeah. wasn't a hundred percent, but man, I felt like I was running on almost eight cylinders. Well, I mean, you look at, you know, sprint interval training, you know, Marty Gabala stuff. You look at, t- t- you know, the original Tabata study. They demonstrated that, right? Yeah. I mean, these guys maintain their fitness levels with a fraction of the work. I mean, Tabata's group was what? Four minutes of work, four times a week. So 16 minutes compared against the control group, which was 300 minutes. Yeah. And the speed skating coach could then spend more time focused on skill development. Look how much time they, they saved. And they could maintain those fitness levels. And that's really and the reason why I like bringing that up, man, is the more I just want my listeners to hear that again and again. When it comes to high-intensity training, it's really it's the intensity. It's not the volume. It's not the amount they do. So a good yep. 10 to 15 minute workout. If you get really, if you get after it for 15 minutes, that's all you really need. I mean, that's what all the evidence is showing. And it still doesn't mean you can do other stuff, but you only need, if you're really going to do a hard workout, 15 minutes of really just gut busting sweat is all you need. And maybe you can come back later or do a little bit more strength training later on. Why is I want to say that and just, you know, kind of reinforce yeah, no. that. Because yeah. my fear is really that people are just, we all know this, man. We talk about this all the time. People way overtrain. They hear 10 minutes of hit is good. So what do they do? They do 50 minutes. Mm-hmm. We're an American, you know, 10, we, we can have 10 ounces of soda. No, I'm going to have 60 ounces. of soda. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. It's a very, very, a very good point. Well, what do you got? What are you, what are you working on these days? I mean, what is, I know you got school going on and you're wrapping up with that, but any well, areas, any kind of new areas of study you're looking at kicking? The um, yeah. So, well, actually I'm building some content. So I'm actually writing some courses for NASM. I uh, just did one on fat the physiology of fats. I kind of taking us through the fats we eat to digestion absorption to how fat is stored in the body, how fat is, is metabolized. Um, I'm doing one on just met metabolism, like, you know, just hacks on metabolism. Um, worked with one with Mike Fanagrassi on um, aligning exercise with your diet type. So we talked a little bit about not just intermittent fasting, but other types of diets and kind of the exercise that goes best with those types of things. Um, I'm building a lot of education for my partners in in uh, overseas, so building nutrition stuff there. So I'm doing a lot of that stuff. Um, the hardest part is, you know, I'm working with one arm, and <laughs> so I can do reading. Um, so I've been doing a lot of kind of revamping because, you know, we're, we're moving our classes onto a different learning platform, so I'm revamping stuff. But I've been doing a lot of reading on, uh, you know, kind of new ideas on coaching. So I've got several books. I've got them right here. I've got, you know, Atomic Habits by James Clear. Um, you know, obviously I've, BJ Fogg's released his new book. So I'm looking at his book, uh, The Power of Habit. You know, I'm looking at some of those, just 
looking at more of the, the, the mental side of stuff because I'm doing a kind of a, kind of get into a lot of that stuff for Orange Theory. But then I think the thing that's really, you know, I think out of every traumatic event, right, of every downturn, there's also obviously a silver lining. And I think what's really come out of this COVID has been an opportunity for me to look at revisiting programs like you're talking about, these short, compact, simple programs that can be, you know, calisthenically driven or with minimal equipment. And so it's been kind of fun for me before I had my surgery to play with different ideas. And I, that's kind of been, as soon as I, I I can return back to normal, I want to continue playing with that because I think honestly, that's our future is as, you know, we return back to normal times. I don't think, the, like you and I talked about it, I don't think the fitness industry is going to go back to where it was. I think there's going to be, at least in the interim, the next few years, a hybrid form of how people are going to be exercising. And I really feel like, you know, we can do a great job in providing the appropriate types of programs for those people that want to exercise at home or exercise in small little chunks of time. Yeah, no, it's good to hear, man. And it's actually funny. I'm thinking about it because you're one of the few people guests I have on. You don't have a book you're, you're, you don't have a book you're promoting. You don't have anything that you're promoting. I always enjoy talking to you just for the pure, pure knowledge of it. And we were running out of time, so I don't get a chance to ask you about Avengers and what's happening in the Marvel Universe, because I know that's a, that's another passion of yours. Have you been catching up on movies and stuff during this time at home? Have you-, you know, I actually decided to go through, you know, knowing I'd have this downtime, I'm kind of going through the Avengers in a chronological order. Oh, are you? You know, and I'm, I'm, I'm going through all the movies, and especially the end credits are really showing me their great mistakes. And I actually found some, I found some mistakes. Like, oh, for wow. example, Thor 2... And the Avengers, the first Avengers movie, in some lists, they are listing Thor 2 ahead of Avengers, and in other ones, they do the other way around. But if you watch both movies, you realize they both make mention to the other movie, which means Marvel screwed up that there's references in both movies to, like, for example, in Thor 2, when Jane Foster talks to Thor, she says, I saw you in New York. She's making reference to the Battle of New York. Uh, right, But in, in Avengers, they're making references to Thor 2, the ether. And so that is supposed to have happened. So I start to realize I'm picking up on these little things. It does, trust me, it doesn't delusion me in any way. I'm still an avid fan, but I'm actually enjoying how these Easter eggs, you know, the little end credits are really setting up the next show. It's kind of been fun to do it. Cool, man. Well, I, that's, it's, yeah, it's, you, God, man, you're, it's always fun talking to you, dude, because you're always, <laughs> you're always just a wealth of knowledge. Well, speedy recovery on the shoulder, mate. And uh, let's catch up for lunch before. I don't know if we can get back together for lunch, but when, when, once you can get together for lunch, yeah. we'll catch up for lunch again soon. Sounds good, Pete. Thanks for having me on. It was truly an honor and privilege and great to talk to you again. <laughs> that's one of my favorite things about Fabio, right? Here he is. He's one of the smartest dudes I know. He can quote studies. He can quote statistics. But he also knows the Marvel Universe. I love that. And, and I've, I've enjoyed some of the Marvel, Marvel movies. But I have to admit, I, it's hard for me to watch the movies sometimes. I just, I don't follow along with the CGI that well. I, I, there's some movies I haven't seen, for, not for any reason. I just, I don't really find them that interesting. And I grew up collecting Marvel comics. I have a in fact, I'm recording, many of you listen to the podcast regularly, know I record the podcast in my closet, and I'm looking at my box right now in my closet of all my Marvel comics from the mid-80s. I'm a huge fan of the Marvel Universe. I don't follow it that, I don't follow it that closely for the movie, uh, movies, and I love always you know, hearing Fabio's take on the Marvel Universe. So, of course, he's going to find some idiosyncrasies and some things out of line when he's going back through that. 
Now, on that note, if you like the information that you heard today in the podcast and you want to learn a little bit more information about how you can use exercise to enhance your quality of life, pick up a copy of my book, Smarter Workouts, The Science of Exercise Made Simple. I have chapters in there on core training, mobility training, metabolic conditioning. So if you want to learn how to do high-intensity interval training the right way, if you want to learn the science behind high-intensity interval training, I teach that to you in Smarter Workouts. That's, again, how you can support the podcast. The other way you can support the podcast is give it a favorable rating. However you're listening to it, whatever platform you're listening to it on, reach down, give it a five-star rating because you know how it works. The more ratings you, more ratings this receives, the more people will find it in the, search, in the search function and the more people can find the benefits of listening to All About Fitness. You get benefits out of it, so take a moment, give it a rating and let other people get the same benefits out of it. As you can tell, I love talking with Fabio. He always, he, he gets me thinking and I love being, contra- you know, um, yeah, I love figuring out what, the, what I'm doing wrong. You know, and that's because I try to do this the right way. I try to read the research. I try to apply the research. And Fabio is definitely one of the smartest people I know. And so when I hear what he's telling me in terms of intermittent fasting, that means I have to make a few adjustments to my program. And I've been trying to do that. We recorded this a few days ago. And now that I'm recording the introduction, I've been trying to make some of those adjustments. And I'm feeling the difference. I mean, I want to have energy for my workouts. I don't want to. So I am trying to eat a little bit of something about an hour before I work out. So I have the energy and I have a little protein. Also, the other thing is, is trying to add more fat, more healthy fat, you know, bringing back more avocados, bringing back more cold fish to add healthy fat to the diet to work on satiety. And satiety, satiety or satiety, I don't know how to pronounce it. It just means that if you eat fat, you feel fuller. So if you have a little, I mean, we've been conditioned this whole idea that fat is a four-letter word, fat is bad. Well, nothing can be further from the truth. Healthy fats, the omega-3 and the omega-6 fats, like what you get from avocados, nuts, unprocessed nuts, you know, fresh nuts and cold water fish, then that those are the healthy fats that have a number of benefits. The fat actually supports a number of the hormones that you eat. Here's the whole thing, like cholesterol, and I'm, I'm working on trying to get an expert on testosterone on, on the podcast soon. Cholesterol, HDL, high density, lip, high density lipoprotein cholesterol is a component of testosterone. So if you eat if you eat foods with high in fat that have HDL cholesterol on it, it can theoretically elevate your testosterone levels, something that is good for middle-aged guys like myself. Anyway, that's why I like talking to Fabio. I like I want to cover the science of high-intensity interval training because don't be afraid of doing HIT. As you get back to the gym, don't be afraid of doing HIT, but don't do high-intensity training every day. And you don't need to do more than a few minutes of it. You heard me talk with Marty Kabbalah. A few episodes back, Marty Gabala studies the science. He, he's written the book literally, and he's written I don't know how many studies he's done, conducted how many a number of studies on high intensity interval training. And Marty Marty's research shows definitively that to get great results, you only need to do about ten minutes of it in a total workout, less than that even. That's what Azumi Tabata found with his his four minute research, as Fabio referenced in there. I'm gonna see if I can link to a, a blog that I've written on Tabata training down below to give you a little more information. Want to give this information to you so you know how to the approach that you should take as you get back to the fitness center. I know we've been exercising, staying active while sheltering a place at home, and I know a lot of us are ramped up to get ready, excited to get back to the gym. But I just want to make sure you do it the right way so you stay healthy for the long term. Hey, as always, I appreciate. If you want to stay in touch with me, you can follow me Pete McCall underscore Fitness. That's Pete McCall underscore Fitness on Instagram. My website is Pete McCall Fitness. 
My email is Pete at Pete McCall Fitness. Feel free to contact me. Any thoughts, insights, ideas for guests. I'm always open to ideas for guests. And I really, as always, thanks for stopping by. I look forward to having you join me for future episodes of All About Fitness.